Hello everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. I'm Duncan Rayburn, your resident theological clown metaphysical adventurer, thought-prestidigitator, and occasional existential detective. And in this episode, I want to draw your attention to two biblical psalms, and then to a few observations that are, I think, embedded in these psalms, and which will hopefully change the way you think about that ancient concept called idolatry. I want to talk about idolatry because I think it is a powerful theological and, I would say, philosophical notion, and yet it tends to have been forgotten as a very helpful way of seeing things and, in fact, seeing through things. So, on with those psalms then. The psalms in question are Psalm 20, especially verse 7, and Psalm 115, especially verses 4 to 8. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And Psalm 115 verse 4 to 8 says this, and by the way, this is echoed in Psalm 135. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. You will already notice a theme, and that theme revolves around a particular fact of human nature, namely that to be human is to be a worshipper. There is no sense in denying this, I think, because our very existential condition is a condition of giving ourselves over to, well, whatever it is that we give ourselves over to. We cannot help but find someone or something to give ourselves over to. We will do this whether we want to or not, and whether we are asked to or not. If there was nothing in existence to worship but a moldy piece of cheese, we would worship that, or I guess ourselves. The biblical picture is alarmingly concrete about this. We get to worship either the ground of being, the God who transcends the given order of worldly and universally stuff, Or we get to worship stuff, that is, beings. The choice is essentially between an ultimate form of transcendence and imminence, between the ground or the figures. Now, this is not something we moderns may want to hear, because the distinction between transcendent being and imminent beings is literally impossible to grasp. The distinction is so huge that it is unfathomable. But, well, this is what the distinction really means. Either we will seek to be saved by the one who is the origin of life, or we will seek salvation elsewhere, because salvation is precisely what it means to give ourselves over to something. I know this is all very abstract, so what does this mean a little bit more concretely? Let's start with that thing about the horses and the chariots in Psalm 20. One way to think about idolatry is that It is a technology, or at least it functions like a technology. In Psalm 20, we see fingers being pointed at the human tendency to put too much trust in tools. Horses in this verse are tools more than animals since they are connected to the chariots. They have a function. The key thing about tools is that their uses are limited, and so they naturally create a shrunken world in which they function. Yes, a fire poker, for instance, can be used for poking fires and back-scratching or murder, if you're that sort of a tyrant. But a fire poker cannot be used as a kite or a toothpick or for tenderly hammering out Chopin on a piano. 
You could try to use it for such things, but, well, good luck to you. The tool itself has its own limitations, and so it will not let you. Which is to say, the idea of idolatry here is about closing down meaning and the experience of meaning to very few specific coordinates. Remember, and I think this is vital, every function is, in a way, a dysfunction. Every enhancement is, in one way or another, an amputation. This is significant, so I'll need to come back to it. But it gets to the nature of idolatry better, I think, than talking about idolatry in terms of inanimate statues that people bow down to and worship. Idolatry is not just a posture of regarding things as personal. It can be this, certainly, but is more about regarding personhood as that which has been redefined and reduced by things. Which is to say, idolatry is not first and foremost a matter of conscious choice. It is a matter of habit, a matter of the total pattern of a person's life. Idolatry is, as in Psalm 20, for example, an issue of trust. Trust, which is closer to the meaning of faith in the Christian scriptures than the word belief, is not just a matter of some conscious attention we pay to anyone or anything. It's a matter, perhaps more so, of who or what we in actual fact lean on, and yes, give ourselves over to. A metaphor may help to explain this. When you fall back onto a sofa, that's an image of what trust looks like. This flopping down, letting go gesture, that releasing control and letting the sofa catch you. Trust has to do with habits of thought and action. It's got to do with our expectations too. And the key thing about trusting the thing, the tool, instead of the ground of being, is that it sets false limits on what is trustworthy, and therefore on where truth can be found. Instead of picking on real tools like Marxist analysis or deconstruction that do this, though, I'm going to invent an equally stupid theory that I'm going to call tableism, which is the belief that, which is the belief system that if you have something that needs to be put down, it should always be put down on a table and on nothing else. The table is the thing for tableists, not the floor or the chair or the top of a refrigerator or microwave. If you happen to be carrying a chair somewhere, for instance, according to tableism, you cannot put it down on the floor. You must put it down, as you would a cup or a plate or a book, onto a table. According to this new and improved addition to ideology, the limits have been set according to something that I hope you will agree is not rooted in the nature of reality and our interactions with it. It is rooted in a choice that is, at best, arbitrary and at worst, simply insane. But the rule of this insane ideology must be followed if one subscribes to it. It is an ideology that will inevitably lead us to having more tables than we could possibly know what to do with. Tables inside our cars, in our pews, in our roads and malls. Tables for tennis players if they need to put a ball down somewhere. So you've got tennis courts, for instance, covered in tables, even if they're not playing table tennis. And I know this sounds like a crazy ideological construction, because it is, but it is not so very far from what we often do with our ideologies. To the materialist, for instance, no allowance can be made for the spiritual, even though the materialist is, as far as I can tell when I look at him, a remarkable mix of magic and metaphor, a clump of matter that is conscious of being matter. 
to the Marxist, for instance, everything is a matter of economics and oppression, even though there is so much more to life than economics and oppression. To leftists, it's impossible to conceive of any good in capitalism, even if that means refusing to acknowledge that communism hasn't been all roses. And to rightists, the left is always wrong, even when they happen to be right. At least this is true for anyone who has an overtly, I would say, religious commitment to an ideology, which is a commitment to the coordinates of belief instead of a commitment to truth. And so you will see there is definitely a relationship between idolatry and ideology. I can, of course, go on, so I will. Idolatry means that the tools we use to think with eventually, given our commitment to them, become the very way we think. They become our entire perceptual framework, which includes some things and excludes others. And often it excludes very important things. This doesn't just happen in the realm of ideas, as I've suggested. Your job may be your idol, as could your desire for a particular kind of relationship. Your tools, phones, computers, books, these can be idols too. Which brings me to another little insight around idolatry that stems from the second psalm I read to you, Psalm 115. When things become idols for us, when we make our systems into salvation structures, we start to imitate not their best qualities, but their worst qualities. I've seen this especially in highly bureaucratic environments. I can see that bureaucracy, to some extent, can be incredibly helpful. Policies and procedures can be protective mechanisms for people, just as laws can be. But like the idols mentioned in Psalms 115 and 135, bureaucracy, even when intended as something to serve people and support them, can dehumanize. Bureaucrats can do terrible things just by following the rules, as we find very well explained, for instance, in Hannah Arendt's notion of the banality of evil and also in the work of Stanley Milgram. This brings me to another idea that can help us to understand where idolatry has taken root. Psalm 115 suggests a cutting off of the senses. I find this really fascinating. As people start to conform to their tools, they begin to resemble them. And by resembling them, the means by which they might access the world beyond them is rendered powerless. In reflecting on this, this got me to realize that idolatry functions like a closed loop, which is very different from how consciousness itself functions. Consciousness requires feedback. I, for instance, intentionally conceive of the coffee cup in front of me and through this intentionality, I move my hand towards the cup and fold my fingers around the handle and lift the cup to my mouth. At every moment and in all embodied senses, there is feedback. The fact that I'm capable of drinking coffee at all depends on this very simple feedback loop, just as my sense of what I'm saying to you makes sense only because of a feedback loop. And this is true even though it functions at a much higher level of abstraction. Idolatry, though, closes off the feedback loop. It sets clear and uncontestable coordinates for interpreting the world and then refuses anything that would seem to contradict those coordinates. I'm going to use the simple and perhaps controversial example of a so-called research article published in a peer-reviewed academic journal by a PhD student at the University of Arizona who claims that he identifies as 
a hippopotamus. I would like to believe that said human being who identifies as one of Africa's deadliest chubby animals was joking, but it seems that said supposed academic was slash is being quite serious. Certainly what he says is interesting, although I cannot for the life of me find anything true in it, which follows on from some of what I've spoken about in some of my recent episodes. Here's what the author says in the abstract of that article. This article explores the formation of a tranimal hippopotamus alter ego. Confronting transgender with trans species, the author claims that his hippopotamus identity allowed him to verbally escape all at once several sets of categorization that govern human bodies, gender, sexuality, age. This, by the way, uh, is in the Journal of Theoretical Humanities, and just how theoretical the humanities could be, I had no idea. Even if my broaching the subject gets me into a bit of trouble, that is because idolatry also lacks a sense of humor. In any case, if someone who walks like a person, talks like a person, and quacks like a person calls themselves a hippo, then by the same logic, I can say that even if what I say walks like mockery, talks like mockery, and quacks like mockery, it really is not mockery at all. In fact, by that logic, even the thing I'm talking about is not the thing I'm talking about, and everything is what it isn't, and even what it isn't isn't what it is, and there is no use in arguing about any of it. So, welcome to the new nihilism, folks. Anyway, I am going to allow for the fact that beneath what looks to me like rather astonishing nominalist hogwash, there is arguably quite a lot of pain and misunderstanding. Chances are good that this hippopotaman is not in a good space if the best he can do is muster a ludicrous fiction to cope with his life. But even the most sympathetic reading of his foray into academic kayfabe must take note of what seems to me to be an obvious failure to allow for feedback that includes obvious realities like biology, mental capacity, and even the ability to conceptualize oneself as a hippo, which is something, for all we know, that not even hippos can do. The man has failed to be a hippo by merely thinking himself a hippo. Just like, I guess, the materialist fails to be a materialist by simply thinking himself a materialist. I don't want to belittle this gigantic and ferocious beast of an academic nonsense machine, this weed-chewing, nasal-guffawing pond guzzler, but this seems to me to be a blatant case of idolatry, even more than it is a blatant case of hilarious stupidity, although the two may be related for all I know. According to the worldview underpinning what by all assessments looks like a delusion, there can be no feedback loop allowing for someone like me to say something like, well, you may want to think yourself a hippopotaman, but several facts are against you. For instance, no hippo has written a paper published in an academic journal claiming that he has decided to abandon his species designation and to rather self-identify as a helicopter. No hippo has written anything at all. In fact, all arguments and realities point to the fact that no hippo will ever write anything. Even the most optimistic evolutionist must surely have doubts about this. In any case, no hippo has even thought about calling itself a hippo, at least as far as we know. But for all I know, maybe this is a good defensive strategy anytime someone tries to put you into a box you don't like. Simply tell them, 
that while their attempts to classify you as a human being are certainly allowable, you prefer to be classified as a hairdryer or an ant. If you don't like this podcast, give it five stars because semiotics is another form of irony. Quite frankly, and to take this a bit further, perhaps I'm not even talking right now. Maybe this is just a recording of a computer-generated, machine-learned voice that sounds like Duncan Rayburn. Idolatry, like AI, generates fictions that seem real. It generates a salvation structure without offering salvation. And if you contradict the idolater, you will end up not with a defensible argument for why he or she is right, but rather with sheer brute force, because there really is no defensible argument where idolatry is concerned. And of course, I am saying this as a, something that can apply even to what I would call ideological forms of, of Christianity. It is possible to adopt Christianity not as a lens by which we can access the highest truths of reality, but as a way to shut down discussion about anything beyond what we take as obvious. I am taking a very extreme example here, and this is by no means the, the normal way that people view the world. But in both extreme and in tamer forms of idolatry, the tendency is towards something that is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 115, dehumanizing. Idolatry tends to be dehumanizing. It tends, that is, to reduce the human to something less than human. Postmodernity has some wonderful aspects and components to it, but it tends to insist, as Peter Kreft points out, that everything is always less than what it is. To self-identify as an animal is a step down from self-identifying as human. Still, this theoretical detour can be shown to play out in very practical ways in our lives, when, for instance, we set up a dream for ourselves that our actual capacities and realities render impossible. What about those things that we cling to, that we trust in without even knowing it? I don't have an easy answer, but I do know this. Idolatry cannot stand up to scrutiny, and so one of the best things to do is to hold it up to scrutiny. Hold your postures, beliefs, habits, etc. up to scrutiny. This does tend to make idolaters upset, but it is the best thing to do. Idolatry hates reality, and so... It is good to look for real things that contradict the idolater's posture and position. And this is first and foremost a, a matter of personal pursuit. I do not think that we can take the idolatrous splinter out of someone else's eye when we haven't even bothered to take the idolatrous plank out of our own eye. Again, this will not just be at the level of concepts and ideas, but needs to be at the level of habits. If you're spending too much time on your phone, for example... It's not just what you think about phones that needs to change, but the entire way that you engage with that technology. But, alas, idolatry is a closed loop, and often the only way for an idol to be smashed is by an accident that theologians call grace. And grace, by the way, sometimes comes across as something rather painful. It is grace, the eruption of transcendence within imminent experience that allows us to see beyond the frameworks and tools that we've adopted. It is grace that gives us the capacity to recognize our own sin and fallibility. It is grace that helps us to accept grace. I use the hippo case above because it is also preoccupied with self-defense and with self-designation. 
as in a lot of identity politics, but also in a lot of shoddy theology and shoddy political philosophy, the self takes too much space. It is everything in a way. But Christianity says something terribly radical and radically different from so much of what everyone is kerfuffling about these days. The self is nothing. At least it's not very much. So the idea is to stop worrying about yourself. You are nothing and yet you've been saved. You are nothing and yet you are loved. Allow yourself to return to nothing, to return to the nothing out of which creation itself is born. Creation is always ex nihilo, out of nothing. Only then, only in confession and repentance can we be remade. But we will be remade into what we are, not just into what we have conceived ourselves to be. We will be remade as children of God. 